welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe, And I'm Brenna, and I'm at the office again. Well, you know what? Stop rubbing it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a sweet setup here because, like, there's no cats or babies, and I have three monitors, and the fancy sound guy lent me his fancy sound mic. Hi, John. I think you listen sometimes. Aww. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of cool. And it's the Friday of a reading break here, so literally oh, right. everybody is on vacation. Right. Yes. <laughs> Here I thought you were just gloating, you know, look at me with my lack of babies and cats and multiple <laughs> monitors. It's just so rare that I like actually feel like I can just do the podcast without random interruptions. Although I did quit Outlook so that it wouldn't do the thing it does when we're usually here where it's like, bing, bing. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. No, and then Joe texts me like, we shut down your email, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I will say I've listened to a couple of other podcasts so we've talked about this before. I am not into ASMR. No. And I really dislike it when there's weird, random other sounds on people's podcasts. Like I listen to a couple where they clearly just open cans of beer. Oh, no. And I'm like, edit that out. I don't need to hear it. I know it takes an extra couple of seconds, but get rid of that. I don't like it. And yeah, people have their phones going off and emails buzzing. You're like... When I listen to a podcast, I want to listen to the people. I don't want to hear these other ambient noises. And you know, Joe, I tease you because you do so much work for the show and I do very little. But seriously, our listeners often comment that the sound quality on our show is really good. And it's because you attend to those kinds of details in a way that I am too lazy to. So I'm very grateful. <laughs> Just attribute it to my personality disorders in which I'm like, what is that sound? What is that? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. <laughs> well, it works for us. <laughs> yeah. It sometimes also makes it sound a little choppy. So I could afford to be a little more liberal with the editing. <laughs> so, Brenna, <Yes. laughs> we are doing a mini-sode. Mini-sode! Yeah, and it's kind of a jam-packed mini-sode. <laughs> we're going to do some homework, we're going to do some listener mail, and we're going to give you our March and April picks. Not that March and April aren't jam-packed with stuff, but we've just noticed that doing a monthly forecast seems like a lot, and we haven't been getting a ton of feedback about it, so we're going to try doing two months this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did ask for it in the last episode. And spoiler alert, we're actually recording this before that episode drops. So we may have received emails from people <laughs> saying, we love it. It's fine. I feel like we personally have realized it's just eating up a little too much space. If we're only doing two minisodes a month, I don't know that I want to dedicate 50% of those to not talking about other interesting, important topics. And it's true because in the last little while, we've had some things like um, Netflix stealth released, a really oh. cool looking YA show with a POC main character that they didn't promo at all. Nope. And we want to fit that into a Minnesota, for example. Yep. So yeah, it, you're right. If we do a forecast every month, we lose the space to do those kinds of things. But as always, feedback is welcome. So if you're always. like, no, we need it monthly. Let us know. We can rethink things. Mm -hmm. Or we can just find other ways. Yeah. We do have the hashtag on the Twitters. We do. So we can always use that to promote other things. I feel like people wish that we just had a Twitter handle, but... Uh, Who's going to maintain that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could, really, realistically. But uh, it's hard, at this though. moment, I don't know that I want to. It's hard, though, you know, because if we use the hashtag, then we drive people to it a little bit more organically than insisting that everyone follow the show. I there like it. It's yeah. the secret feminist agenda model, and I think it works. Speaking of hashtags, that is hashtag HKHSPod. Don't forget to get in touch about our predictions today or the homework we're going to share or listener mail. Mm -hmm. I guess it's not really predictions, is it? Not well, so much. No, it's a different word. It's Friday afternoon. What do people want from me? <laughs> I had like two hours of sleep last night. Um, Joe, mm -hmm. I have homework. Okay. Why don't you start us off? What are you reading and or watching? I'm really proud. Joe, guess what? What? Guess. What? I finished Slayer. <gasps> if you could see my face. <laughs> Once again, I'm bringing out the shock face for the podcast. <laughs> Brenna, you finally finished I it. I finished it. After I berated you publicly. That helped, to be perfectly honest. Also, it is the end of February, which in Canada world means that T4 slips are due which meant that I have to put it in the mail to my former babysitter. 
And so I was like, I'm not going to send her the T4 and not send her the book back. That would be absurd. Yeah, it's been a couple of months. It's been a hot minute. So <laughs> I did. And, and helpfully, I had insomnia last night. So yay. Oh. <laughs> Productivity masquerading as just something that's going to affect your mental health and your physical well-being. <laughs> yay. Yay. Okay, so tell me about how did Slayer all come together? Oh, you know, I really enjoyed it. So um, Slayer is by Kirsten White. It's the first in a series. And for those who haven't been listening to my saga with this book. I mean, I've, I feel like we have promoted this book more than any other on this I'm podcast. I'm not going to say anything more than that it's the continuation of the Buffy universe, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer universe. I really, really enjoyed this book when I actually like sat down and devoted some time and read it last night. One mm -hmm. of the things that it's doing that I think is really interesting is that it seems like it's going to be kind of a paranormal romance slash coming of age sort of going to kill some vampires kind of story. But sure. what it really is is a story about how we fit into our roles in our families Ooh. and how sometimes the role your family puts you into doesn't fit you and sometimes mm -hmm. they have a harder time than you do with figuring out what comes next after those roles get shed or or reinvented so our protagonist is supposed to be a watcher and as you can guess by the title what she finds out is that she's actually supposed to be a slayer so mm -hmm. she's supposed to be someone who protects vampire slayers and it turns out that she is one and what that means for the dynamics within her family her sister is sort of desperate to succeed in this world of watchers and hasn't been able to for reasons that you find out in a twisty kind of coming together her mother mm -hmm. is terrified for what this means for her and what it means for the family because well, yeah. watchers would know firsthand how dangerous it is to be a slave exactly and nina who's the protagonist of this story her father was buffy's watcher and he died so it's really interesting more than anything else as a kind of meditation on family dynamics and family grief and trauma and how you come out on the other side of that or maybe don't i really think it's worth reading i understand there's a second one out now i think it came out last month it looks like these are just going to get published every january uh forever Oh, they've been fun. very successful. So yeah, I think that it's worth checking out for folks. And I will say up front, you do not have to be like a Buffy person. I've seen like two episodes of the show total. Mm -hmm. If you like strong but troubled or fallible female protagonists, if you like queer romances, and if mm -hmm. you like demons, this is a good book for you. You don't even have to be that into the supernatural stuff. It doesn't sort of overtake the narrative. It really is a family coming-of-age story kind of thing. Hmm. You realize you basically just described me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Strong but fallible female characters, queer romances, and supernatural elements. It is a good book Why for you. Why did you read this book and not me? <laughs> it would be a good book for you. So book one is Slayer. Book two is out now. It's called Chosen. The author is Kirsten White. And uh, yeah, no, it's a strong recommend from me. And I'm embarrassed that it took me so long because when I finally sat down to read like the last 250 pages of it last night, it took an hour. So. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we should also clarify at this point, you are a fast reader. I am a fast reader, but that's what I like. I mean, I really just needed to when sit you down get and into focus. It. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine yeah. what's gotten in my way. Anyway, I'm very proud. I had to share it with the listeners. Haven't even put it on Goodreads yet. So. <gasps> wow. Breaking, breaking news, news that'll come like two weeks late. Yeah. But, yeah. Gonna breaking news. Later. Um, but Joe, do you have any homework today? I do. Actually, I'm also going to do a bit of a follow-up. So when we did our last homework check-in, I mentioned that over the holiday break, I had read a really fun book called One of Us is Lying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were into so, it. And we're actually going to get to cover it someday, hypothetically, on the podcast because it's currently being adapted into a television show. Nice. Yeah. And it has a sequel. So I had really enjoyed this first book and I thought, you know what? Now that we're doing regular sodes every other I'm week, so I've got a I little bit more happen. time. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> so since we've got a little bit more free time to explore non-specific podcast books, I thought, you know what? I really enjoyed that first book. I'm going to check in on the sequel and see how it comes together. Because at the time when I mentioned it, I said, it wraps up really well. So I don't know how they're going to do a second story set in this world called One of Us is Next. That was my first thought when you described it was that it sounded like actually really nicely self-contained and I had questions. Yeah, so I'm happy to report that what they do is 
all of the characters from the first book are retained, but they have graduated and gone on to do other things. And it actually focuses on the main girl, Bronwyn's sister from the first book. So Maeve becomes the main character, along with a couple of new characters who are attending the same school. So (gasps) basically what we do is we keep the focus on the school and we just downshift to follow the next generation. We call this the Degrassi effect. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you still get to touch in on, you know, how Bronwyn is doing with her romance with Nate, which is what developed in the first book. So you get a little glimpse of what's happening with them, the characters from the first book, but then there's a new mystery, which is that in the first book, there had been a secret gossip website that developed, and it started to spill people's secrets. And in the second book, people start getting text messages that ask them whether they want to do truth or dare. And if they don't respond, then the person who is spilling these secrets will do just that they will out them with something that will damage their reputation or they can do the truth or the dare and the dares become increasingly more dangerous and more risky and it's become clear that they're starting to target specific people because only certain people are getting the texts that are asking them whether or not they want to play the game although everybody at the school gets the generic this person has done this thing and here's video evidence and of course it escalates to the point where someone dies and from there it's like okay who is sending this what is the rationale how are we all involved and who's in danger next i'm kind of in love with this because it sounds like degrassi meets murder she wrote a little bit yeah Yeah, because it's still very much you know i'm making this connection with this person Mm -hmm. i don't know what i want to do i'm on the cusp of graduation but also is that a bomb in that person's backpack man all right Mm mm-hmm It's just a very easy read. It's well-written. It's not particularly challenging in terms of stylistic conventions or really unique characters, but like everybody has their own unique element. So Maeve is a former cancer survivor. She survived leukemia. She's actually very worried that she might be regressing. So she's keeping her own secret because, of course, in these books, the secrets are everything. Yes. So there's nice character touches that make it interesting and compelling to read but it's also not challenging enough that you can't knock it out over a weekend i mean it sounds like a pretty traditional thriller and i don't mean that as an insult Mm -hmm. like it it sounds Mm -hmm. like a pretty well done kind of traditional thriller yeah cool yeah just good just enjoyable in that regard so if you're looking for something kind of quick and easy but still good yeah i recommend it it's called one of us is next nice Okay, so also in this episode, we are circling back to our last mini-sode on sex education because we did get a couple of emails about it. Yeah, important emails, I think. Good things to address. Yeah, we did get a certain amount of feedback on the socials where people said, you know what, I really like the show. I'm happy that we're having this discussion a second time for the second season. Wish that the episode had been a little bit longer. And even I kind of thought that when we wrapped it up, it's a longer episode than we had initially intended. But it also, you know, I realized as we wrapped it up, we hadn't even talked about the sexual assault. Yeah, that's true. Oh, God, that's true. There's just a lot happening in season two. So we got two emails. And I'm going to read the first one about the language. Please do. I want to start there. I think it's an important place to start. I think so too, because it it can be addressed quickly and succinctly, but it's very important. Mm -hmm. So this is from a friend of mine, actually, that I went to university with. (gasps) You went to university with other people? I know. How dare? (laughs) (laughs) So this is from my friend, Sarah Chown. She says, I work at a youth-led organization that focuses on HIV and Hep C and the myriad of health and social inequities that cluster around these two viruses. One of the great things this organization does is focus on supportive and inclusive language. One of the things that I learned is to say died by suicide rather than committed suicide. And this is me breaking away from the email. Folks, this is an email mostly directed at me. If you go back and listen to our episode on Looking for Alaska, you will hear that Brenna is very specific about her choice of language. And then I think it also comes back in our episode on Looking for Alibrandi. When we have talked about suicide in the past, I have not been careful with the way that I have used this language. And I think, Brenna, you've done a much better job, but I haven't I haven't picked it up the way that you have put it down, shall we say. <laughs> so coming back to the email. So Sarah says... 
committed can be an unintentionally blaming or shaming word. So we, and a lot of critical suicide ideology people, try to avoid it. So well, Sarah says that she was a fan of our analysis of Adam's character and how the show is addressing the gray areas around his bullying and his goodness. These are good things that are modeling, but it's important for us to acknowledge that saying things like committed suicide has a certain stigmatization and it becomes really important when we are thinking about how that intersects with things like homophobia and how it can manifest and amplify how we treat others. So Sarah has asked us politely and very uh, informatively to say rather than say commit suicide we should be using the terminology died by suicide so as to not shame or stigmatize. I'm really grateful for this feedback. And Joe, it's kind of you to say that I have tried to attend to this. I do try to attend to this, but I suspect that I slip up. We definitely did, both of us, in the sex education episode. We've talked before about how using equitable language is like a choice you have to make all the time. And it's a choice you have to be conscious about all the time until you don't. And there are some words that I trained out of my vocabulary really easily and there are others that have been a lot harder and one of the things that I've noted before on this show and I've heard noted on other shows like on Secret Feminist Agenda for example Mm -hmm. is this idea that ableism is really hard to scrub out of your language which doesn't mean you shouldn't try but that even when you think you're being really really conscious about it sometimes you aren't our language developed in a profoundly ableist society so it's really important that listeners hold us to task on these kinds of things and that we hold ourselves responsible for this so yeah going forward we're gonna be a lot better about making sure we use phrases like died by suicide instead yeah and to be honest i really appreciate getting these kinds of emails where people No one ever takes us to task, but people are always very good at cueing us to say, you know what, this is an outdated mode of talking about this important issue. I'll never forget how often I used to use the term prostitute Mm -hmm. as opposed to sex worker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I've done a really good job of eliminating the word lame from Mm -hmm. my vocabulary, which I still see all the time. I see it. I feel like I see it pervasively everywhere. And of course, you know, people have requested, like Indigenous people have requested that we stop using the word savage Mm -hmm. as a response. Mm -hmm. So there's small things that we can do that make a huge impact because when people see some of these, what, see and hear, some of these terms, it's not just triggering, it harkens back to a time that we have ideally as a society moved forward from. Yeah, and I think it's really important to listen to communities. And, you know, when communities ask us to change, when communities Mm -hmm. to which we do not belong ask us to make changes to the way we speak, I think it's really important. So I'm grateful for this. I also am grateful for the fact that our listeners are always so generous in their feedback and that they are willing to call us in and not just stop listening to us. I think we're really lucky. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> it'd be really easy to be like, hey, these <laughs> these two are jerks, yep. and why are they using the wrong language? I don't want to listen to them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, continuing that trend, we got an email from Andrew, who is one of our regular correspondences. I was going to say, he's a friend of the show. Yeah, he's good people. <laughs> so he wrote us a fairly lengthy email addressing some of the things that he would have liked to have heard us address in terms of some of the criticisms for Sex Education Season 2. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that I had actually heard some of these and it just didn't make its way into the episode. So I was aware of some of these and it took Andrew's email for me to say, oh, wow, yeah, we needed to address that and we didn't do a good enough job of problematizing some of the issues that people have seen in the second season. Mm -hmm. What we are talking about primarily is the depiction of people of color in supporting roles for white people's journeys, Mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm like deeply ashamed that we did not address this. Well, I have to be perfectly honest. I didn't do a good job of seeing it when I watched the episode. Like I definitely, or I watched the series, I definitely watched this series with whiteness as my perspective mm-hmm. um, in a way that I am, I would like to think I'm normally better about. So I was grateful for this letter. So Andrew gives us a couple of different examples. 
So the critique here is that marginalized figures, particularly uh, racially marginalized characters, but also a character like Isaac, who is disabled and marginalized as a disabled character, they act as catalysts for the plot lines of the white characters. So for example, Rahim's storyline gets introduced this season really just to function as a stumbling block for Adam to be the intended end of that love story. So it's Adam's redemptive narrative that Rahim just kind of gets bulldozed in favor of. Right. And likewise, we see the same thing with Isaac. He's really introduced as this villainous character in a way that we talked about. But what we didn't really acknowledge is the way in which he's being used as a stumbling block in the way of the inevitable romance between Otis and Maeve. Does that kind of cover it? Cover that sort of piece of the criticism? Yes, and the same can be leveled at Ola, who, I mean, I think she was introduced late in the first season as a potential alternative for Maeve, and then what season two does is exactly what Andrea is suggesting, which is that she more or less just becomes a placeholder until Otis can reveal to himself and quote-unquote the audience that he would rather be dating Maeve which is what happens in that big party sequence which is just a really uncomfortable scenario right yeah it's revealed that he never actually liked Ola and you could argue or quibble about whether or not that's actually true I think he does actually have a fondness for her and the show does a good job of pivoting to then say you know what Ola is actually better suited for a character like Lily but you can't dismiss the fact that there's a whole chunk of the season where a person of color is more or less being used as a disposable placeholder until the two white characters can finally inevitably come together. And I think we were seeing, um, we were really celebrating the sort of the use of diversity as just a fact of life, like the fact that these interracial romances don't have to be sort of meditated upon within the text. But what we weren't attending to as careful watchers was whose story is primary um, in each of those cases. And when you actually pay attention to who kind of quote unquote wins in each of those cases, it becomes really clear that a lot of the marginalized characters in sex education are being used to drive plots for white characters. Yes. And I know specifically among queer audiences, there's been, I don't want to say uproar because I'm not sure sex education is a show that generates a lot of uproar, but there's been dismay over the way that Raheem in particular was addressed, if only because we so rarely get two people of color in a relationship depicted in any medium yeah it's often more like what we've seen with ola and otis where we have a person of color with a white character whereas here we actually had two racialized characters in a queer love story and then one of them is dismissed you know very unequitably so that we can get a more conventional person of color with a white character again andrew makes another really good point in that email and i'm again dismayed that it didn't bother me when i watched it but Adam basically ruins the play in order to share his feelings in that scene. Mm -hmm. And like, here's why I'm a hypocrite. That's the kind of thing I usually hate. Like when <laughs> when everybody on Twitter is all like, oh, it's so nice that that guy interrupted her graduation to ask her to marry him. I'm like, yes, throw the whole man yeah. away. So <laughs> I, I um, I because that's so obnoxious, right? It is. Yeah, like Andrew literally says, I found it incredibly obnoxious because it's almost like they're murdering themselves to steal the spotlight from the hard work that a community of people has invested a significant amount of time and energy in. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like deciding that your narrative is like primary Mm -hmm. above actual real life human beings. Um, And I guess I forgave it for Adam because I wanted it so badly for him and I would not normally. So Andrew, good on you for bringing it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, he does have one final point, and he wanted to critique why we labeled Otis as a mediocre white boy in the bingo round, Mm. as opposed to somebody like Lori from Little Women, Mm. whom we did not categorize as mediocre white boy. Mm -hmm. I believe this was me, so I'm going to defend myself by suggesting that Otis is more of a main character, which I don't know if that makes more sense, but in my mind, watching season two... 
Otis is the definition of the entitled, frustratingly average character. Like, Laurie is a bit of a hypocrite in Little Women because he thinks that he and Joe are endgame and that therefore they should be together. But apart from that, I guess I never found him mediocre or lacking, whereas Otis in season two of Sex Education is revealed to be just an obnoxious arse, for lack of a better term. I think I was really thinking of the party scene and when he gets drunk. Like, to me, that was the climax of the season. Mm -hmm. We didn't really talk too much about it, but that confessional drunken tirade in the party scene, to me, confirmed that Otis is the most aggravatingly mediocre character on this show. Full of people who are working on themselves to improve themselves and become better, and Otis is just an idiot. I wonder if that's really the distinction because Lori, while often frustrating, is not actually, he's not, he's not sort of. He's not harming other people. No, and he's not less than the expectations of the people around him, if that makes sense. Like, there's not a lot of air between the way Joe bullheadedly moves through the world and the way Lori does. They just have different end goals, I think. Mm -hmm. I wonder about a character like Otis, who he gets away with a lot of stuff, right? He really does. Like he gets yeah. away with a lot of stuff and he gets away with a lot of stuff because he is a white teenage boy who looks relatively inoffensive. And I think that's where we were coming from with placing him on the bingo card. I wonder if it's more that we should have thought less of Laurie and maybe included him as a mediocre white boy in maybe. retrospect. <laughs> maybe. I stand by not placing him on the board though still. I would need to think more about why, but I don't, as a reader, when I'm reading a story of a mediocre white guy, I am often frustrated that they are achieving beyond their effort. And I don't actually Mm -hmm. think that Laurie achieves beyond his effort. He's wealthy, right? Like he's Mm -hmm. going to have opportunities that other people don't have because he's wealthy and he Fs around in Europe. He has the opportunity to F around in Europe because he's wealthy, but he also really does in a kind of profound way respond to the, to the criticism that Joe has of him. And Amy. And Amy. And responds to the criticism that Amy has of him. And I don't love that. Like, I don't want them to be together particularly. I don't think that's a great ending. Yeah. But I don't think that Lori is floating through life in the same way as someone like Otis. Yeah. I mean, season two also just really came down hard on yeah, Otis. Yeah, it did. It was like, hey, look, he's a little version of his crap dad. Yeah. Now, one thing that we should uh, give Otis a bit of credit for that Andrew does raise as a final point is the level of friendship between him and Eric remains probably his most compelling and humane aspect. I like that the show doesn't just go full Otis is a terrible person. You know, he he is deeply flawed and he has a lot of work to do on himself, Mm -hmm. but his willingness to support Eric even what I think we all understand is going to probably be a bad decision to pursue a romance with Adam. But I like that Otis challenges Eric to make sure that he is thinking through what he really wants for himself. And I like, Andrew pointed this out in his email as well, I like the physicality between Eric and Otis. I think that's really important. Like the fact that they hug and they support each other physically in a way that we often well, I shouldn't say we often don't. We do not ever <laughs> typically see between straight teenage boys and gay friends, even when we have those kinds of relationships. Yeah. And I really do appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So once again, thank you to both Sarah and Andrew for your emails regarding sex education and language and issues. I was happy to have the opportunity to think through the issues that were presented in both emails and to address them publicly on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. And always thank you if you're listening and we say something and you're like, "Mm, I really think that they got that wrong. Uh, We want to know. So this is a good place to remind you of the hashtag HKHSPod or our email address HKHSPod at gmail.com. Please keep your feedback coming. We do really do take it to heart. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so Brenna, let's turn to our main event, which is some forecasting. Forecasting for March and April. I think I have one March title and two April titles. And I have two March titles and one April title. See, look at us. (laughs) It's like we coordinated, but we did did not. not, No. (laughs) 
All right. Do you want to start us off? I will. I'm going to start us off with a kind of a controversial pick, one that's been on the Twitters this week uh, with some different kinds of responses, because I think it's an interesting title and I think the backlash around it tells us a lot. So the book I am talking about is We Are Totally Normal by Rahul Kanakia. Rahul Kanakia is a writer uh, based, I think, in San Francisco, and she's a queer writer, and she writes queer romances, um, and this is a queer romance. So I'll read you the blurb, and then I'll tell you about the controversy. Sounds good. Nandan's got a plan to make sure his junior year is perfect. He's going to make sure all the parties are chill, he's going to smooth things over with his ex, and he's going to help his friend Dave get into the popular crowd, whether Dave wants to or not. The high school social scene might be complicated, but Nandan is sure he's cracked the code. Then one night, after a party, Dave and Nandan hook up, which was not part of the plan, especially because Nandan has never been into guys. Still, Dave's cool, and Nandan's willing to give it a shot, even if that means everyone starts to see him differently. But while Dave takes their relationship with ease, Nandan's completely out of his depth. And the more his anxiety grows about what his sexuality means for himself, his friends, and his social life, the more he wonders whether he can just take it all back. But is breaking up with the only person who's ever really gotten him worth feeling quote-unquote normal again? From Rahul Kanakia comes a raw and deeply felt story about rejecting labels, seeking connection, and finding yourself. Hmm. It's interesting. I had this on my list as well. And then I obviously took it off because I saw that you were going to talk about it. I feel like when I picked it, I just picked it because it sounded like an intriguing queer story. And now I can immediately see where some of the issues lie. Yeah. So there's a lot of one star reviews on the Goodreads. Mm. A lot of people who are really upset about the fact that Nandan ends the story I guess and I haven't read it nobody has it comes out in March but those who've had advanced review copies talk about how well I will start by saying there was a slate of reviews on Twitter that said this sucks because Nandan is straight at the end okay and then a lot of people were writing back and saying like I don't think you read that book right right so it sounds probably a little more complicated than that yeah it sounds like there's a lot of questioning and a lot of ambiguity it's worth noting that this book is getting comped with books like becky albertalli's queer romances which do tend to involve a fair amount of like questioning right because this is a coming of age story and those questions are really normal this is true, but Albertalli has a tendency to wrap things up in a way that is mostly satisfying and a little bit fantasy-oriented. And it sounds like this isn't the case. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that as some book critics have pointed out, a lot of the one-star reviews are coming from white queer readers. Okay. And Rahul Kanakia has talked a lot about how the different it's a different experience to be young and queer and... Oh. A person of color. Yeah. So she wrote on Twitter, she wrote a short thread on Twitter that I'm going to read in response because I think it's important. She says, people are entitled to hate or love my book. We are totally normal. But Dave and Nandan do get together in the end. So she has said this publicly, which is why I'm not worried about sharing it. And also, (laughs) it's YA, folks. We usually know how these are going to end. It's about the journey. It's not about the end. Exactly. And she says, to say that they don't or that it's not a queer book is very perplexing. So there was a lot of chatter on twitter about how this isn't quote-unquote really a queer book Come on, people. So many queer books, so I'm continuing her her point here. So many queer books are so tidy. Characters realize they are X and all is well. I've noticed this is particularly the case when authors write outside of their own identity. They're so fearful of being called out that their portrayals become box-ticking exercises. But people are different. They have heterogeneous experiences. You can be queer, for instance, and still feel disgust over sex, and maybe it's because of shame, or maybe it's because of simple anxiety. If that happened, you'd naturally wonder, am I not gay after all? Is this real? I don't know, maybe this story, my story, is too unique and too particular to resonate broadly. That's okay with me. This just means that it's all the more necessary, and when the right kid comes across it, they're going to feel understood in a way they never had before. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting. It's very interesting. So... Rahul Kanakia has been very critical on Twitter about people writing particularly trans narratives. Kanakia herself is trans, and she's very critical about people writing trans narratives from outside of the experience. And she's very critical about the whiteness of YA publishing and how only certain stories get to be told. And we've had that conversation a few times now. Mm -hmm. 
it's worth noting that like it's getting really good reviews from places like Kirkus and lots of queer reviewers of color are giving it really positive reviews. But unfortunately, like the first review you see on Goodreads is a one star review and right. it's the review that's getting the most traction. You know how I mean, Goodreads, right? They get voted up and stuff. So yeah. The reason I wanted to highlight this book today and talk about it a little bit longer than I normally would for a forecast book is that I, I really want people to read deeper than just the first level chatter about this book. Right. I think it's really important. Yeah. Ooh, that's, uh, I feel like I say that it's heavy, but this is heavy in a different kind of way where we're not even just talking about a book anymore. We're now talking about the expectations of what we have as readers, which is actually something that I personally struggle with a lot, right? I mean, I've talked so many times on this podcast about books that I'm excited for, and then I read them and they don't give me what I was quote unquote expecting. And therefore, how do I how do I judge that? How do yeah. I critique it? Is it fair to say that I don't like something because it didn't give me what I wanted. And in this case, it's even more complicated because now we're talking about division among racial lines and yeah. people's inability to consider experiences that may fall outside of their own. Ugh, it's murky. It's very murky. And I think it's the kind of situation where it's probably worth checking out the book on its own merits and seeing how you feel. And I also, I want to say there have, I won't, don't want to pretend that all the criticism of this book has just come from white queer readers, although it does seem to be the dominant thread. Right. But I don't want to erase queer people of color who, who have problems with this book because that's f totally fair too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's worth looking at different perspectives when these criticisms come out. And she, uh, Rahul Kanakia has decided to market her novel for the next six weeks by writing, she calls it a series of disturbingly honest blog posts. <laughs> and the first one is titled, If You Dislike My Novel, You're Really Not Alone. So she seems to be taking it somewhat in stride. But yeah, I think, I don't know, I think the title is interesting and its approach to the question is interesting. And it's always good having more perspectives and not fewer. Yeah. And honestly, this only makes me more intrigued to now read the book and make up my own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, my my picks are not quite as controversial. <laughs> <laughs> my other two are not controversial at all. So okay. <laughs> we'll blaze through my next two. So I'm going to start with Witches of Ash and Ruin by E. Latimer. And of course, I picked this because it has both a queer element and it's got witches, Brenna. Love me some witches. <laughs> you know it. All right. So here's our log line. 17-year-old Dana Walsh is struggling to cope with her somatic OCD. The aftermath of being outed as bisexual in her conservative Irish town and the return of her long-absent mother, who barely seems like a parent. But all that really matters to her is ascending and finally, finally becoming a full witch. Plans that are complicated when another coven, rumored to have a sordid history with black magic, arrives in town with premonitions of death. I'm like so into this. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so Joe. <laughs> I know, right? Dana immediately finds herself at odds with the bewitchingly frustrating Minor King, the granddaughter of their coven leader. And then a witch turns up murdered at a local sacred site, along with the blood symbol of the Butcher of Manchester, an infamous serial killer whose trail has long gone cold. Joe, it also has a serial killer? I know! <laughs> the killer's motives are enmeshed in a complex web of witches and gods, and Dana and Miner soon find themselves at the center of it all. If they don't stop the butcher, one of them will be next. <laughs> It's like, hi, could you put in the mad libs of things that Joe will like and out pops this book. Seriously, that's hilarious. And it mm -hmm. does sound great and it does sound fun, but it literally sounds like they made it for you on purpose. Yes. I mean, I appreciate that E. Latimer snuck into my dreams and just stole all the content <laughs> from my head and then published it as a book. So once again, that is Witches of Ash and Ruin by E. Latimer, and it's out on March 3rd. Amazing. <laughs> okay, my second book, uh, I lied, it's also in March. I really thought it was in April. Sorry, everybody. Hey. Um, it's called Avocado Bliss. <laughs> it sounds like it's put out by the Goop Factory. <laughs> I know. The title made me laugh so hard. I like to eat avocado toast while paying my mortgage just to really like screw with those people who hate millennials. I don't understand. How does that work? How can you <laughs> afford both, Brenna? 
Um, so this is Avocado Bliss. It's a co-write. You know how much I love a co-write, Joe? Mm-hmm. Candace Robinson and Gerardo Delgadillo. Dacre Vinison has spent the majority of his life in quite a predicament. Even the surf and his books can't erase his type 1 diabetes. But when Dacre's family moves to a new Mexican town, an eccentric girl obsessed with trees offers him a job on the spot, leading to what could be the perfect distraction from his problems. Salvatore Tamis has one true love, her avocado farm. I just love that line so much. I could marry it. (laughs) Her family constantly nudges her to be more social, but Sal much prefers the dirt, the sun, and the solitude. Besides, trees listen better than people do. Right? For Sal and Dacre, their job won't stay easy breezy for long, not when an avocado delivery to Palenque, Mexico pops up on the radar. Together they embark on a road trip across the jungle, where they form a tighter bond. However, as obstacles arise, their newfound troubles may lead to more woes than bliss. I feel like it's super obvious how it's going to turn out, and I right. don't care. Nah. <laughs> I mean, what more could you ask for? A little road trip, right? a little fruit and veg, <laughs> so, a little love. I'm so here for avocado-based romances. Right? I mean, I feel like we are just really running the gamut of different kinds of love affairs that we can have. (laughs) It was great because remember uh, our last forecast episode or maybe the one before when it was like, it's a pretty typical romance, but in space. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, it's a pretty typical romance, but on an avocado farm. (laughs) Gosh. I'm just beyond delighted. I will say it's got pretty much across the board five star ratings on Goodreads. But do you think it's just from avocado fans? (laughs) Listen, we're a mighty and powerful crew. Right. But people seem to really connect with the characters. So a lot of descriptions of it as a sweet young adult romance with plenty to give in terms of character. So Hmm. I'm here for a character-driven romance with avocados. Nice. (laughs) Okay, my second pick is a little bit of CanCon. My favorite. Yeah, so I actually received an arc for this, and I have not had a chance to read it, but I'm still going to talk about it like I know what I'm talking about. I know which one you're talking about, because I got an arc too, and it's on my TBR. Oh, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is Fight Like a Girl by Sheena Kamal, and it's out on March 10th. It really looks super good. I think so too, yeah. Which is why I felt comfortable raising it, despite the fact that I have not actually read it. Well, we don't read our predictions or our forecasts. It's allowed. (laughs) But I felt bad because it's been sitting here and I'm just like, dude, you should be reading this. But I just don't. I don't get to it. I'm pretty sure I moved it from our old house. So You did. Yeah, we've had it for ages. (laughs) Terrible, terrible. But anyway, listeners, this is what it's about. Love and romance. In some families, they're bound up together, dysfunctional and poisonous, passed from generation to generation like eye color or a quirk of smile. Trisha's trying to break the chain, channeling her violent impulses into Muay Thai kickboxing, an unlikely sport for a slightly built girl of Trinidadian descent. Her father comes and goes as he pleases, his presence adding a layer of tension to the Toronto East End townhouse that Trisha and her mom call home. Every punch he lands on her mother, carving itself indelibly into Trisha's mind. Until the night he wanders out drunk in front of the car Trisha is driving, practicing on her learner's permit, her mother in the passenger seat. Her father is killed, and her mother seems strangely at peace, lighter somehow. Trisha doesn't know exactly what happened that night, but she's afraid it's going to happen again. Her mom has a new man in her life, and the patterns, they are repeating. Oh man, sounds so good. Yeah, I really like the idea of this, not only because, once again, we've got an unconventional activity for a female protagonist in Muay Thai kickboxing, Mm -hmm. but also we've got a complicated family history, we've got that CanCon, which we both appreciate, and it sounds like this could go into some really complicated, interesting areas. I... Just think that I am really ready to read a book about a girl punching things. Mm-hmm. Is that allowed? I am mean, I allowed I think to it's just encouraged. be like into it? <laughs> yeah. If you want to self-practice as well, you know, maybe not people, but get a punching bag. I wouldn't mind it. I just think it sounds, I mean, it sounds like dark and heavy, but it also sounds super empowering and I'm really looking forward to picking it up. Yeah. I recently, some of you may have seen on Twitter, finally organized my to be read 
pile. That was daunting. Oh my god. Joe, it's so bad. I was so good for years living in Vancouver and not buying books. Mm -hmm. Really, really good because we had no space. And then, I don't know, I bought a townhouse. And I'm like, I just put books everywhere. I got room for books in You've every room. you got so much space house. now. <laughs> and your local library sucks. And my local library kind of sucks. And so I was like, oh, man. I mean, I love you, Camloose Library. I just wish you had more things. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> I realized I had kind of been tricking myself by keeping books like some on the nightstand and some in my office and some here and some there. And when I finally collected them all in one place, I was yeah. like, you have a problem. Woman. <laughs> Brenna, do not need to stage a book intervention. Seriously, I'm telling you. Well, all that to say, somewhere in that pile is Fight Like a Girl by Sheena Kamal. I'm just saying I know where it is now. I feel like that's a win. <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What's your last one? Okay. My last pick, and I'm really, really excited about it, is a series that I've talked about on the show before. Um, mm -hmm. And this is the second and final installation of the print version of this series, which it was a webcomic previously. It's called Check, Please. This is the one I've talked about before, which is like gay stuff and hockey and yeah. adorable boys and baking. But why is it the final? Um, It only ran for like it covers the four years of the main character's undergraduate degree and so the first two years were in book one and the second two years are in book two and then the author is just wrapping it up all right i, I suppose we can allow people to move on and try different types of projects <laughs> it just i guess i was surprised that there's only two me too because it's really great so the title of volume two is check please book two sticks and scones by, <laughs> <laughs> by ngozi ukazu and let me read you the synopsis because it's like as good as the title eric biddle is heading into his junior year at samuel university and not only does he have new teammates but he has a brand new boyfriend biddy and jack must navigate their new secret long distance relationship and decide how to reveal their relationship to friends and teammates and on top of all of that Biddy's time at Samuel is quickly coming to an end. It's two full hockey seasons packed with big wins and high stakes. And it, uh, it just reminds you then that it's the collection of the second half of the mega popular webcomic, a coming of age story about hockey, bros, and trying to find yourself during the best four years of your life. Ugh. I don't like that last part, but no, yeah, I know. yes yeah. to everything else. It's really not the best four years of your life. Listeners, if you're stuck in undergrad right now, it's not the best four years of your life, I promise. Yeah, things get better. Unless they're going really great, in which case, yeah. Even if they're going really great, they're going to be better because this is not your magnum opus. No. It can't be. Anyway, I just, I really <laughs> love this series. It's such a cute voice. It's a real little kind of fantasy comic in that this, this bit, Eric Biddle, Biddy in particular, he's queer and he's quite effeminate and he plays on a hockey team at a really high level and everybody loves him and his sexuality is not an issue. Um, yeah. They're entering into some new territory with the fact that Jack is going to be coming out. Jack is not out in the way that Biddy is. So mm. don't know how that's going to get, how they're going to navigate that and Jack is pursuing much more of a professional career Biddy doesn't intend to so there's going to be some I'm sure bumps along the way but overall one of the things that I think readers really love about this comic is that it is just really gentle and happy mm -hmm. and it's nice sometimes to have a place to go where things are gentle and happy and you can solve most problems with a batch of scones so <laughs> that's yeah. check please book two sticks and scones by <laughs> ngozi ukazu and it's out april 7th okay yeah once again all of these books are almost always available in the first week of the month right i know i know although my last two were march 31st and march 27th respectively oh okay mm-hmm hmm. So my April pick is called The Lucky Ones by Liz Lawson. And <gasps> unfortunately, this does not sound gentle or easy. So no, but I kind of suspected with. you were going to pick it when I saw it. I mean, I won't lie. Listeners, I told Brenna off air that uh, <laughs> I feel like we maybe picked the wrong month to downsize the forecast episode because I probably had about five or six picks for both March mm -hmm. and April, respectively. Mm -hmm. So it has forced me to become more selective. If you want to know what some of the other books were, just hit me up using that hashtag and I'll let you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the lucky ones... So concerns May. She is a survivor, but she doesn't feel like one. She feels angry and lost and alone. Eleven months after the school shooting that killed her twin brother, May still doesn't know why she was the only one to walk out of the band room that day. No one gets what she went through. No one saw and heard what she did. No one can possibly understand how it feels to be her. 
Zach lost his old life when his mother decided to defend the shooter. His girlfriend dumped him, his friends bailed, and now he spends his time hanging out with his little sister and the one faithful friend who stuck around. His best friend is needy and demanding, but he won't let Zach disappear into himself, which is how Zach ends up at band practice that night. The same night, May goes with her best friend to audition for a new band, which is how May meets Zach, and how Zach meets May and how both might figure out that surviving could be an option after all. It sounds like very, very emotional, and it sounds like it's going to deal pretty significantly with PTSD and teenagers, and it sounds like I am really, really here for it. Yeah, I try not to pick too, too many issue-driven books, but Mm -hmm. less so in Canada, way more so in the U.S., school shootings are a now near commonplace event they really are and i feel like this is one of those things where we're seeing ya authors acknowledging the fact that things are happening in the world and that we need to be able to address them and that an outlet to do so is to talk about the impact and the ramifications of this With all that said, I like the final sentences of this plot description because it sounds hopeful. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not necessarily going to be easy. Something tells me this book is going to be really difficult. But the fact that it involves people not succumbing to the grief and the PTSD, but finding a way to find their way back to people, I feel like that's what we need when we're talking about things like school shootings. I agree with you. I do. It's rough, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just reading the description. I was like, do I really want to do this as I'm adding it to my holds? Yeah, I think I'm definitely going to read it. And it's interesting, too, because I am endlessly fascinated with this topic in a way that has shifted a lot since starting to think about sending my own little person into a school. Yeah. Definitely changes my perceptions. And I'm sort of like even more obsessed with it in a way that's probably not that healthy. Yeah, don't don't go there, Brenna. Don't go down I that know. well. <laughs> I know. Except that I totally just bought uh, Dave Cullen's book Parkland to read. Oh no! I know, but he, I really loved his book on Columbine. He was one of the first people to document that sort of the mainstream narrative of like, this is what happens to bullied kids, and mm-hmm. so you should just not bully kids, and then we won't have a problem. He was one of the first people to really debunk that in the case of Columbine. Yeah. Anyway, so he's a really good writer, so I ordered his Parkland book, but all I'm trying to say is, like, I think that we, as a society, want so desperately to, like, figure this out and to understand this, and and the fact that we can't uh, just makes us more interested in hearing these kind of narratives. Or maybe that's just me. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I feel like the issue is that there's a lot of people who just don't want to talk about it at all mm. like they don't want to acknowledge oh, that it's a you problem mean like, you mean like lawmakers <laughs> yeah you yeah. know people who think mm. that guns are more important than people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also just you know we talk about the event and a lot of the time we talk about the shooters and their situations and then we don't talk about survivors and victims And we don't consider the ramifications or the impact, you know, the idea that people will live with this for the rest of their lives. And what does that do to people? Yep. I think that these are conversations that we need to have, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Yep. I think you're right. I will probably read that one too. It sounds like a worthy approach to the topic. Yeah. Particularly if it means, you know, maybe May and Zach get together and they have some kissy faces stuff at the end i do love some kissy faces right yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh yeah that is our march april forecast and our next regular sode we're uh as we've mentioned before returning to the world of cichlid with me and earl and the dying girl so that's coming uh next week Mm -hmm. and until next time I will see you on the page. I will see you on the screen.